Well, good morning, North Park. Good morning. Well, we are now in week three of our winter sermon series for all generations to come. And if you were with us last fall, you might remember that we spent some time looking at the creation narratives found at the beginning of Genesis. And so this January, we've been picking up where we left off in the story. And so over the past few weeks, we've been immersed in the story of Noah and the flood. And at times, the flood narrative can be uncomfortable and disorienting. I wonder if you have found that. There's been moments in the past few weeks where you're feeling like squirming in your seat a little bit. It's a story that can lead to a lot of big questions about who God is and how he relates to humanity and what that means for us today. And so I must admit, I wasn't too upset to discover that I would get to cover the end of the flood. God's covenant with creation, perfect. Let's let Pastor Joel cover all that death and destruction and devastation of sin and the chaos of the floodwaters, and then I can jump in today and lean into the nice part of the story, right? Perfect, where the waters recede and everyone emerges from the ark, and God promises to never again destroy everything and everyone with a flood. Sounds good, right? But as it turns out, we really can't section off a happy ending here. Things aren't perfect on the other side of the flood. And the text continually invites us to keep the whole story in view because everything is so interconnected. So much so that as I read through the passage this week, I found myself saying over and over again, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Right? Where have I read that before? And inevitably, I would end up having to turn back the pages of scripture. And so this week, I found myself re-immersed in the creation story immersed in the reality of sin and humanity's descent into chaos, immersed in the magnificent scope of the floodwaters, but also immersed in the bewildering power of God who is deeply committed to bringing order to our chaos. So with that in mind, let's dive in. The verses that we just read began at Genesis 8, verse 18, and they begin by describing the moment that Noah and his family and every living thing emerged from the ark. According to the details of the flood found in the previous chapters, they had just endured a very epic, very intense, very lengthy ordeal, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, 150 days of rising floodwaters, 150 days of receding floodwaters, and then waiting and waiting and waiting some more until the earth was completely dry and the Lord decreed that it was time to disembark just over a year after they had boarded the boat. Now I know some people view these numbers that mark the passing of time in Genesis 7 and 8 in a very straightforward way, while others believe that there may be some level of symbolism involved, but regardless of how you approach it, the overarching truths being communicated here are clear, including the reality that this was not a short-term crisis. So imagine what this moment would have been like for Noah and his family after so much time and so much hardship and upheaval and loss, finally stepping onto dry ground. Last summer vacation, I had the opportunity to spend some time relaxing on a floating dock. And that's a far cry from the ark in this story, I realize. But I can vividly remember just the feeling of stepping off the dock. And maybe you've experienced this before. I had gotten so used to the movement of the dock as it floated above the water that something in me expected the ground to keep moving underneath my feet. And it felt strange to have solid ground under my feet. 
Now imagine what it felt like for Noah to step off the boat, to stand on dry ground, and to press his toes into the earth. And it strikes me this morning that my example of the dock really pales in comparison to some of the stories that we heard shared this morning. I think some of our newcomer families can really relate and understand probably to this idea of this starting over after such an ordeal. And as I think about Noah, I wonder if he took in a deep breath after so many months of breathing the stale air of the close quarters on the ark. I wonder if he saw waves every time he closed his eyes, just recalling the image of the expansive water stretching to the horizon. I wonder if he was filled with grief over the devastation of the earth. I wonder if he was filled with awe at the miraculous way that God had saved him. And I wonder if he was overwhelmed with the work ahead of him as he and his family started over. In that moment, what did he think? What did he feel? What did he say? We're left to wonder because the text doesn't say a word about it. Noah is silent. And if you haven't noticed this yet, let me just point out that Noah is actually completely silent through the entire story. He never says a word. He doesn't ask questions or voice doubts or give thanks or communicate impatience or express grief. He has absolutely no lines in this unfolding drama. And of course, that doesn't mean that he actually didn't speak at all. He might have. We just aren't told about it. And this has led scholars to describe Noah as a flat character. As far as the Bible is concerned, he's like Melbatost. Aside from the fact that he was a righteous man who was obedient to God, we know very little about him. His thoughts, his feelings, his personality, they're a blank. And there's actually an important reason for this. It's because Noah is actually not the main character of this story. It isn't really about him ultimately. He is secondary in the narrative because the main character in this story is God. And we're gonna see this more clearly as we read on. As Noah and his family emerged off the ark, it was day one of a new beginning. And no doubt there would have been many things that needed to be done to establish a new life on the earth. But the first thing that Noah did was build an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And so a couple of questions come up here first. And I don't know if you've wondered this, but if Noah took some of the animals who had boarded the ark two by two and killed them, does this moment of offering cause the extinction of some animal species, right? <laughs> so rest assured, this is not the case. And this is actually the first moment in this passage that caught my attention and got me thinking, clean animals, wait a minute, I've heard that before. And sure enough, if you flip back to chapter seven, verse two, it says that when it was time to board the ark, God told Noah, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. And clean animals are the type of animal that you would need for a sacrifice. So the extra animals for this sacrifice were already available, no extinction events needed. <laughs> so our next question is, why did Noah do this? This isn't the first time that the idea of an offering to God was talked about in Genesis. Cain and Abel had each made an offering to the Lord as well. But as far as we know, 
No laws or instructions had yet been given about offering sacrifices to the Lord. At this point, the Mosaic law was not yet established. So we don't know exactly why Noah built this altar and made these burnt offerings. We don't know if God instructed him to do it. We don't know if he was seeking God's blessing or protection or giving thanks or atoning for sin. We don't totally know. What we do know is that since God told Noah to include seven pairs of clean animals on the ark with him, it would seem that God expected Noah to need those animals for an offering. The Lord prepared for this in advance. He anticipated this moment when Noah would build an altar and make an offering. And this is important. It's an important moment in the story. It's a bit of a turning point, actually. Noah's actions here effectively shift the focus to our main character, God. We're not told anything about Noah's thoughts, words, or motivations. Instead, we're told about God's experience of this moment. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Now, there's so much in this verse that reaches back to what has come before it. Uh, it's hard to know where to start, and I won't even be able to say it all. But the first time I read it through, what struck me most was how personal and intimate this moment is, that we would be told what God said in his heart. Here we get to know God's innermost thoughts to essentially see his heart. The word heart really caught my attention and as it did, that thought circled around again. This is familiar. This actually isn't the first mention of God's heart in the flood narrative. And if we go back to chapter six, just listen to what it says starting at verse five and you're gonna hear all sorts of echoes here. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. You know, in chapter six, God's heart was deeply troubled as he reflected on the wickedness of humanity. And because of the profound scope of evil and sin, God resolved to wipe humanity and in fact all created life off the face of the earth. It sounds pretty harsh. Could humanity really have been that terrible? Well, further on in chapter six, we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and that he was a righteous man so there's an exception. And this helps to make it clear that there's at least some hyperbole happening in this passage, an exaggeration or an overstatement in order to make a point. Like when someone says, I've told you a million times, or this sermon is going on forever. Yeah, you're not thinking it yet, but we'll see how it goes. People aren't being untruthful, right, when they say things like that. They're just trying to get a point across. So when Genesis says that God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, we can see that the author of Genesis is stressing just how corrupt and evil humanity had become overall. There were some exceptions, but as Joel has said in previous weeks, things had gotten so bad that God's good creation was essentially ruined. A restart was needed because things had gotten about as bad as you could possibly imagine. 
But the way that Genesis 8 echoes back to this passage is unmistakable, and we're meant to hold these two moments up to compare them. In chapter 6, we read that God's heart was troubled, that humanity's hearts were evil beyond belief, and because of this, he resolved to destroy his creation. And then in chapter 8, we read that God's heart was pleased, that the wickedness of humanity still remained, and yet he resolved not to destroy his creation. So the first thing this reveals to us is that God was aware that the flood didn't solve the problem of sin. And next week, as we continue on in this series, we're going to see just how true that is. But despite the unchanging reality of sin in our broken world, something had shifted in God's heart, and it had something to do with Noah's sacrifice. It says that when Noah built an altar and sacrificed some of the clean animals, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's burnt offering. And at first glance, we might just find this to be an interesting detail. Uh, Interesting, first and foremost, because it invites us to imagine God smelling things, right? And that gets very interesting if you start to think of all the smells that might be possible to smell on the earth and God smelling them. Uh, I'm not gonna name them all, but but can God smell things here on earth? It's a, a funny question to consider in some ways, and it's debatable, but if he could, Think about this. Meat smells good when it's cooking. So there's a very tangible way in which the aroma of an offering might be really good. In some types of offerings laid out in the Mosaic Law, portions of the offering were even allowed to be eaten. So it isn't far-fetched to imagine that it's possible to enjoy the smell of the offering. And earlier this week, we had a a staff lunch right after one of our weekly staff meetings, and a wonderful member of our congregation who's incredibly talented in the kitchen cooked for us. And so as we stepped out of our meeting, the smell of the lunch that was lovingly being made for us floated down the hallway, and it smelled amazing. And another day this week, we had a meal cooking in the crock pot during the day at home, and so that when we got home, we were met by this delicious smell. Dinner was ready. My week seemed to be filled with these experiences of smelling good food being cooked. And in some ways, it helped make it easy for me to imagine God enjoying the smell of some good cooking over a fire. But that's likely not what this verse is really getting at. This is a case of things sounding familiar again. There are actually examples throughout scripture that talk about the aroma of an offering being pleasing to God. And these can help illuminate what's happening in this passage. A lot of those references are found in the book of Leviticus. It's a riveting, exciting read if you're ever looking for something. And this is where Moses recorded the details of the law and the sacrificial system that God had established. And there were different types of sacrifices that were given as a way for God's people to give thanks to God, to seek his forgiveness, to make atonement for their sins, Ultimately, ways for them to come to live in right relationship with him. And in Leviticus, verse after verse that describes these sacrifices finishes by saying that they would be a pleasing aroma to God. That wording exactly. And not because of the smell itself, but because of what it represents. Now in the case of Noah's sacrifice, an obvious conclusion might seem to be that God was pleased with Noah's action, that his 
choice to worship God with this sacrifice gave God hope for humanity. And that might be part of it, but remember, God anticipated this moment. He's the one who instructed Noah to bring the extra clean animals on board. So I, I don't think that God was surprised by Noah's offering. I think he expected it to happen. So what did this sacrifice represent that made it a pleasing aroma to God? It's worth noting that the sacrificial system given to God's people through the Mosaic law was not an end in and of itself. It pointed towards something even greater. The ultimate example of a sacrifice that had an aroma pleasing to God is actually found in the New Testament. And Ephesians 5 verse 2 gives us a clear picture of this, explaining that Christ gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus' death was the ultimate sacrifice, reconciling sinful humanity to God once and for all, God's great plan of redemption. And so Noah's sacrifice, this act of worship to the Lord, was a pleasing aroma to God because it was a foreshadowing of what Christ would come to do for humanity and so here in this tender moment, we are shown the very heart of God, his great delight and hopefulness for the good world that he created is on display because of his redemptive plan for the world. And so he is able to say, never again. And there's a footnote here that I think is really important for us to notice. Translators seem to have been a little uncertain exactly what connecting word best represents the intention of the original Hebrew, and the meaning shifts in an, in an important way depending which one you choose. So the first way, the words, you know, even though, communicates that despite the sinfulness of humanity, God resolved not to destroy the earth again in a flood, and in a sense, it seems to be saying that God is deciding to tolerate sin, to simply live with it. But if we use the alternate language offered in the footnote, it reads, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, for every inclination of the human heart is evil. So God's response here is not despite the reality of sin, rather it's in light of the reality of, this, of sin. Um, I didn't mean for that to rhyme, <laughs> sorry. But here God was acknowledging and accepting the painful reality of humanity's fallen state. They were starting over, but the flood had not erased evil from the world. So God resolved that he would not destroy the earth again because of humanity's sin. There would be no point because it would not solve the problem. What it would do is lock God and the world in an endless cycle of floods and new beginnings, decreation, and recreation over and over again. And if you look at the big picture of Genesis from chapter one all the way up to this moment, it's quite incredible to see these movements unfold. Creation, decreation, recreation. And I wanna just pause and actually take some time to reflect on that for a few moments. And so our first movement, we have Genesis starting by describing how in the beginning, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then as creation took shape, God brought order to the chaos, dividing light from darkness and separating the waters. 
Before there were oceans and lakes and rivers, Genesis describes the water as being basically everywhere until God created a vault, the sky, to separate the water and give it some boundaries. And so God gathered the water together in order to bring forth dry land. And then God created plants and trees and he added sun and moon and established rhythms to mark the days and the seasons and the years. He filled the waters and the land with living creatures and then he made humans in his image and he blessed them and he commissioned them to be fruitful and increase in number and rule over creation as God's representatives to the world. That is creation. God brought order to the world that had its beginning as a formless and empty, watery mass. Then in chapters six and seven, we have decreation. Every living thing wiped out, the dry ground disappeared, the waters surged, and we have these powerful, fearsome descriptions of the unboundaried waters flooding the earth, flooding the sky above the mountains. And again, there are differing views amongst Christians about how much the description of the flood here is intended to be literal and what might be figurative or hyperbolic language, but regardless of how you approach the text, it is communicating truth. And the heart of the message is clear. It's a decreation, a return to the chaos that existed in the beginning when the waters covered the earth and everything was formless and empty. Disorder, chaos, a reversal of creation. And all of this leads up to chapter eight where we have recreation. And if you read through it, you can actually see step by step that this chapter retraces the order of creation and the parallels are striking. It begins with watery chaos. And then the wind, God's spirit, sweeps over the waters and then the waters recede. And I love Psalm 104's retelling of this moment. It says, you covered the earth with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. The chaos of the waters covering the earth being brought back into order. And then dry land appears, and then birds soar in the sky again, and then humans and animals emerge from the ark, and then God blesses and recommissions them. Recreation. And the very end of chapter 8 gives emphasis to this in a beautiful way. Here, just to be sure that the reader of this passage understands the significance of this moment, Genesis adds a poem. And this is still God speaking, uh, which I just love. He's saying this in his heart. This moment was so profound that the Lord, the creator of the universe, was speaking poetry to himself, saying, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. This poem speaks of the rhythms of creation being restored it signals that the chaos has given way to order, and God has reestablished the rhythms and order of the world that he loves. And never again will he respond to the fallen state of the world by decreating all of his creation. 
God knew that responding to humanity's evilness with another flood would not solve the problem of sin and the corruption it brings to the earth and to the human heart. And so in this incredible moment in scripture, the Lord revealed what he had resolved in his heart, that he was gonna do this differently, that he had another way, that he wasn't resolving to just tolerate sin or to live with it, that he was resolving to deal with it. And as we move into chapter nine, we'll see that God made this incredible commitment to this work of bringing chaos, the chaos of sin into order, and it's, he didn't just make it in his heart, he made it known to humanity through a covenant. And if you've got your Bibles with you and you're following along, you'll notice that I'm gonna jump ahead to the second half of chapter nine, and this is not because the first half of the chapter is unimportant, there's simply too much here to be able to cover it all in depth. So here's just a quick summary of what we're uh, jumping past. In those verses, God offered words of blessing for Noah and his sons. He affirmed their purpose, recommissioning them to be fruitful and fill the earth. And he established some boundaries and responsibilities and accountability for humanity, calling them to participate with him in upholding the value of human lives made in the image of God. And this brings us to the covenant. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with all your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now the concept of covenant is so important that if you read through verses nine to 17, the word covenant is repeated a total of eight times in nine verses. Maybe you noticed that as Joel read it. We just heard the word covenant over and over again. And this is not a word that's commonly used today. I think the closest thing we have to this idea is maybe a contract but a covenant and a contract are two very different things. A contract is generally set in place to protect the interests of the parties involved, and it's often grounded in distrust. Both sides have obligations to fulfill, and failing to fulfill those obli obligations can nullify the contract or result in a consequence. There are terms and conditions that clearly state the limited liability that each side is undertaking, and if it's not written into the contract, you don't have to do it. So with contracts, there can be all sorts of technicalities and loopholes that you have to watch out for, but a covenant is different. Yes, there are commitments that are made in a covenant, but it is based on seemingly unlimited responsibility marked by extravagant grace and grounded in trust and faithfulness. So as God made this covenant with Noah and all of creation, it wasn't an agreement or a contract filled with conditions and grounded in distrust because of humanity's sinfulness. God didn't say, if humans stop this sinful behavior, then I will maintain a commitment not to decreate the world. He didn't say that. This covenant was an expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness empowered by his grace. Moving forward, the potential for sin to continue to corrupt the human heart remained. And we're gonna see just how true this is in the weeks ahead, but God, with eyes wide open to this fact, made a commitment to all living things that he would find another way to deal with the destruction and the chaos of sin. 
Never again would he decreate all the world. Never again would he destroy all living things with a flood. And how can we be sure? He gave humanity a sign of this covenant promise. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And you know, there are two things that stand out in my mind when I think back over uh, my week last week. The first I've already mentioned, just the smell of delicious food cooking. The second is how my work week started. I arrived at the office in the morning and I headed to the staff kitchen to get a coffee before getting started on my day. Because let's be honest, first things first. <laughs> Gotta start with coffee. And the staff kitchen uh, has lots of windows that overlook the front lawn of the church. And so I glanced out the window as I often do because it's a nice view. And to my surprise, I saw a rainbow. And I'm not exactly sure how the science of this works. It wasn't raining. <laughs> And as you know, the temperatures this week have been sub-zero, right? Doesn't seem like rainbow weather. I wasn't expecting it. But apparently in the wintertime, there's a way, if the clouds are just right, that the sunlight passes through ice crystals in the clouds in just the right way to produce a rainbow. It was a wonderful start to the morning. And it also cured me of any temptation I might have had to kind of skip over this detail of the story today. I had wondered about leaving it out in favor of fitting in some other things. After all, there was a lot I could cover, and the rainbow being a sign of the covenant is already a pretty well-known part of the flood narrative, right? It's in all the children's story Bibles. We know it. But seeing a rainbow at the start of my week inspired me a little, and it reminded me of other times that I've been surprised or encouraged by the view of a rainbow hanging in the sky and this is a picture of a rainbow that I saw this past summer when we visited Quebec City. And if you look closely, you might be able to see that it was actually a double. It was a double, which was pretty cool. And there's something so uplifting about seeing a rainbow. And it's not just that it's beautiful to look at. There's some meaningful symbolism that we can find in it. Rainbows show up in the sky when the storm is over when the torrential rains have quieted to a drizzle and the sun begins to shine again. And this is a hopeful picture. The storm is finished. The light is breaking through. And in Genesis, it's a truly beautiful moment when God says, look, it's over. The storm has passed. I've set my rainbow in the sky. And he promises never again. And it's pretty incredible to think about the fact that the very rain that has the power to flood the earth is needed to make this beautiful symbol of God's love and faithfulness in the sky. It's such a sign of redemption. The water that once flooded the earth with chaos and destruction can reflect light in the sky as a sign of God's promise. And I have no doubt that God had all of this in mind in choosing the rainbow as a sign of his covenant with the earth, but there's also another layer of meaning here that might surprise you. The word for rainbow used in the original Hebrew of this passage is better translated as bow, not rainbow. And it's the same word that's used to describe a weapon, like a bow and arrow, which was not only for hunting, but also an instrument of war and violence. 
So think about the imagery here in verse 13 when God literally says, I have set my bow in the clouds. In a sense, it's like God has symbolically hung up his weapon. He's hung up the violence. It's the laying down of arms in favor of a loving and grace-filled response to his creation. And if you can, just picture for a moment how a bow and arrow is used. If this symbolic bow in the sky is aiming at all, it's aimed away from the earth. It's aimed towards the heavens. And it's possible that I'm extending the imagery beyond what is intended, I'm not sure, but I cannot help but wonder if this hints at God's redemptive plan for humanity because it was God through his son, Jesus, who would absorb the violence, who would bear the suffering in order to save the world. A bow in the sky, a sign of God's incredible grace, his steadfast love and faithfulness for all generations to come. This everlasting covenant was God's commitment to us. Never again would he decreate the whole world. Of course, that doesn't keep us from decreating in all sorts of ways. Sin continues to have the ability to cause profound chaos and destruction in our lives and to drive distance between us and God. We get ourselves stuck in cycles of decreation that sin pulls us towards so that what God created to be good gets distorted and corrupted. And so we constantly have this choice in front of us. Will we let ourselves sink into the chaos and destructiveness of sin, or will we open ourselves up to God's work of recreation in our lives and lean into the power of Christ's saving work for the world? God has made a way. The one who set the earth on its foundations, the one who told the waters where to go, the one who sent his son on a rescue mission for the world that he loves is deeply committed to the work of redemption and renewal in our lives and in our world. He will bring order to our chaos. And so as we wrap up today, I wanna leave you with these questions. What work of recreation is needed in your life today? And what work of recreation is God inviting you to participate in? What chaos do you need to ask God to bring order to? What cycles of sin are you stuck in? What patterns of brokenness are leading you down a destructive path for your life, for your relationships, for the world? And as you take a moment to sit with these questions, we're just gonna spend some time in prayer. Let's pray. Mighty God, the fearsomeness and destructiveness of the flood reminds us today of the fearsomeness and destructiveness of sin. So often we feel powerless to change the chaos in our lives and in our world, powerless to break free from the grip that sin has on our hearts, powerless to loosen the grip that sin has on the earth. And God, despite our best intentions, we know that we are vulnerable to sin and we confess to you today that often we find ourselves leaning into it when we should be turning our hearts back towards you. God, too often we fail to love as you have called us to love. 
So often we fail to honor you in thought, word, and deed. So often we fail to live up to our God-ordained purposes as your image bearers to the world. Even so, we know that we are not without hope. The fearsomeness of the flood and your work of recreation reminds us today of the power that you hold in your hands to bring chaos into order. The waters move at your command, and we know that even still today, as we turn our hearts towards you, that we can trust you to bring order to our chaos. And we invite you to do that, Lord. We open our hearts to your work of recreation in our lives. And we give you thanks and praise because your steadfast love and faithfulness extends to us, extends to all generations. And so we come before you today, Lord, with profound gratitude for your abundant grace and the great gift that you had give, have given to us through the work of your son. Because of Jesus, because of the pleasing aroma of his sacrifice, death has been defeated and sin will not have the final word. God, we know your work of recreation will come to completion. Your good world will be restored. And so we pray, help us to live in light of this truth with confident hope in our hearts as we seek to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we pray by your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Amen.